Hello, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. Today's show is about open access to scientific literature. At the top of the show, you heard Dr. Michael Eisen telling us that 85% of scientific articles are not published in open access journals, and therefore are not available to the public. Here's Dr. Patrick Brown telling us why he believes in open access. Most scientists, uh, it's sort of uh, part of the the ethos uh, that um, you you have this value that um, the more widely distributed and available all the scientific information in the world is, uh, the the better off we all are, and um, and on a more individual level, scientists who are, you know, doing original work uh, would like nothing better than um, for everyone in the world to have, um, you know, have, have the ability to read of their latest brilliant discovery. And here's Mike on his motivations for contributing to the open access movement. It's just, it's just because it makes sense. I mean, you, you know, we're <laughs> scientists and, and you want science to work in a sensible way and you don't want it to be, you don't want your our job, what we're trying to do or what everybody else is trying to do in the field to be um, to be made more difficult and less, um, you know, less interesting just simply because some people who, who you know, don't really participate in the research process at all happen to want to, you know, maintain some uh, business model that was invented in the 17th century. I mean, you know, for me at least, it's just primarily, it's just a, obviously a stupid system. And when, when you look at something that's obviously stupid, you should just want it to go away. Again, that was Dr. Mike Eisen. Dr. Mike Eisen is a professor of genetics, genomics, and development at the University of California, Berkeley. And Dr. Patrick Brown is a professor of biochemistry at Stanford University. Pat and Mike are co-founders of the Public Library of Science, which is a collection of open access science journals. Today, they tell us a bit about the history of the open access movement, the current state of the publishing system, and of course, the story of PLOS. Many people in academia don't spend a lot of time thinking about access to scientific literature. That's because one of the perks of being associated with a big university is that your school subscribes to the majority of journals that you'll probably want access to. True. I've never paid for an article. They can be expensive. But what if you're not associated with a university and you're trying to read these articles? Say, for instance, a family member falls sick and you're trying to compare treatment options. In that situation, you'd have to pay for each article you wanted to read. That's right. You'd probably pay a lot of money. And there's no refund policy, so if the study is not what you thought it would be, you've just wasted $50. You might need to look through dozens of studies. Pat experienced this firsthand when his father fell ill. Let's hear his story. When my dad uh, had uh, prostate cancer, was diagnosed with prostate cancer, he, uh, not an MD, not a scientist, uh, uh, made an active effort to read as much as he could about uh, what was known, you know, what was in the research literature about the disease, what his treatment options were, and so forth. Uh, and this was 25 years ago. It was extremely <clears throat> difficult and expensive for him to do that, um, even though he sort of uh, uh, had had access to the uh, University of California, UC San Diego library system. It was an extremely cumbersome process. 
And uh, um, I think a lot of people have, have had that experience. There's this notion that the you know people who don't have a PhD or an MD aren't qualified to read the scientific literature. Uh, in general, aren't interested, aren't motivated to read it. So there's no great loss to, to keeping it from them. But my experience has been uh, different, and it's not just um, my experience. I've heard similar stories uh, multiple times. Pat's father could not easily access the research he wanted because the studies he was interested in were not published in an open access journal. What open access means is exactly what it sounds like, open access. An open access journal allows anyone to go and freely read whatever is in that journal. It seems odd that you can't already freely access research your tax dollars may have helped pay for. But from a historical perspective, it makes sense. Publishing companies began as a distribution service for scientists releasing their work to the world, or at least the part of the world subscribed to that journal. And those publishing companies used to have to physically print and mail the articles scientists submitted. That cost money, and on top of that, most publishing companies wanted to make a profit. Now, today, the internet has greatly reduced the cost of publishing and distributing content, but open access is still not a given. Some publishers still want to make a profit. And even the not-for-profit publishers might not be all that supportive of open access. Mike tells us that the, the distinction between for-profit and not-for-profit doesn't have a lot to do with open access costs. It's important to note that the not-for-profit publishers are, for the most part, profiting from their subscription-based journals and using the profits to fund the activities of scientific societies and so forth. And and I think Pat will probably agree that, that through almost everything we've done involved in open access publishing, there, there hasn't really been much of a distinction between the behavior of the for-profit and not-for-profit publishers. For the most part, the opposition to um, open access publishing has been led by not-for-profit you know, scientific societies, certainly in the United States, lobbying the government and other things. So, it, you know, th this distinction is often brought up between for-profit and not-for-profit publishers, but they're all basically living off the profits on their subscription journals, and therefore they, they behave in, in effectively identical ways. And it's, it's easy to think about, you know, Elsevier as being sort of some kind of, um, you know, monolithic evil party in, in things, and it's always helpful to have a kind of boogeyman, but, but um, you know, there's intrinsically nothing wrong with, with making profits off of publishing. The, the, the problem is whether you're, you know, effectively running a, a monopoly that, that, you know, uses a, a, your position of control over the literature to just get money at the expense of the, of the community. The for-profit open access publishers you know they're making money, but they're, the the literature that they're publishing is in the you know effectively in the published domain, and so they have sorry in the public domain. So they don't really have any they don't exert any kind of negative control over the over the literature. So it's important to note that for-profit and not-for-profit groups still exist in open access. The choice of business model is not what people like Pat and Mike really care about. That's right. Like many others, Pat and Mike care more about access. And now that we're plugged into the internet, the question of access is more important than ever. Here's Pat on how the internet has affected the way people access scientific literature. In the uh, past 20 years, virtually every <clears throat> scientific and medical journal has primarily distributed 
uh, online. Most people, you know, read it um, on their computer screens rather than on paper and access it that way. And that um, system, the cost of the publisher don't scale at all with the uh, number of readers, number of copies distributed, whatever you want to say. Um, so that business model, the subscription business model, or the charge per copy business model, um, is you know completely unnecessary, and um, and you know the alternative open access business model, where the um, where you get paid for the cost of preparing, uh, you know, of, of handling the uh, mechanics of uh, receiving a manuscript, and you know in many cases reviewing it and editing it and posting it online, which is sort of a one-time cost, um, is charged uh, um, to the, typically to the granting agency that funds the research. Um, that scales with the cost of, of um, online publishing and uh, it enables the published work to be freely available to anyone in the world. But it's not just about the money. Publishers actually own the rights to the information published through them. And in many cases, this ownership does not pose a problem. Most of us don't think too much about the copyright fine print when we're reading articles. But these details become critical in certain situations. Mike and Pat learned those details the hard way. They wanted to search a wide range of literature for information about the genes they, genes they were studying. But they realized that data wasn't theirs to search. We came up against the fact that was a total surprise to me at the time. It just goes to show how naive I was, at least, that um, th we couldn't do that. And the reason we couldn't do that is that the publishers uh, would not allow us to um, extract information from literature online, which seemed absolutely antithetical to the whole purpose of the research and, uh, and the publication process. And I would say uh, uh, the immediate reaction that I had, and I, I know Mike had, uh, was we were extremely pissed off. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, wanted to do something to fix that process. And I would say about equally motivated between just our disdain for the publishers that would do such a thing and our desire to make, you know, make things better. Yeah, it was. It, I, I too. I, at, at the time, I had never. It just never occurred to me to even think about the fact that publishers, you know, owned the literature. I mean, you know, up to that point, all my research had been done in libraries, where you, you know, you got journals off of the shelves, and and, and you know, the economics of publishing was just a non-issue for anybody in science. You just never, you never thought about it, and. You know, someone bought journals, and they ended up on the shelf in the in the library. And you know, the the most the most the, the most important economic issue that he dealt with in 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 dealing with literature was did I have enough nickels in my pocket to copy whatever article I wanted to copy and and bring it back to the to the lab and 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 you know it, the the fact that there was a publisher involved in this and that the publisher held copyright on these things it, it didn't affect your life at all. It, you know, you were you were limited by by technological problems, the, the fact that even, you know, when I was in graduate school and everything was on paper, even if I wanted to try to 
write this kind of you know software, even if I even if I had access to all the journals, it would have been irrelevant because it was the fact they were all printed on you know paper that was the major limitation. And it wasn't until that that barrier, that practical barrier, was removed by the internet and the move to online publishing that these issues even became they became relevant in any meaningful way for 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 people in science. And you know, it's worth pointing out that. The thing that motivated us to get involved in this in the first place, which was almost 20 years ago now, so 17, 16, 17 years ago, that those things have still not been realized. The, the, the idea that even today, I can't, right, I, I, can, I can search through annotated versions of, of 450 million pictures of cats on the internet, right, but I can't, I cannot, any, in any single place, I cannot search through the entirety of the scientific literature, retrieve pieces of, of papers, and do anything with them, even though every single author who wrote every single scientific paper in all of history was, was motivated to share that information with the world. They want other people to use that information. They want people to find it. And now we're in this, this, this ridiculous situation where publishers are now blocking scientists from communicating with each other, communicating with the, with the public, and, and doing interesting and useful things with the literature. Instead of being the, the, the vehicle for um, distributing information broadly, they're actually now the obstacle to it. Right. Pat and Mike had discovered a feature of the publishing system that was far out of line with their beliefs. So they decided to do something about it. The NIH director at the time, Harold Varmus, was attempting to create an open access system that later became PubMed Central. Unfortunately, participation was minimal. Pat Brown was at the first PubMed Central advisory board meeting when there were only two journals participating, PNAS and Molecular Biology of the Cell. On his return, he took his first step toward creating a movement which would eventually become PLOS. So those were the only participants in PubMed Central. BioMed Central at the time had, uh, n no offense to VTech, but, you know, uh, uh, a, pr a pretty haphazard collection of mostly crappy journals. And um, so the content of PubMed Central was, you, you know, was kind of embarrassingly small. And uh, when I flew back from that meeting, um, that's when I started thinking about this, uh, you know, um, uh, writing an open letter to the scientific, you know, to the publishers from the scientific community that would effectively say that, um, first of all, we believe that the scientific literature should uh, be in the public domain and not owned and controlled by anyone. Uh, and in sort of to back that up, uh, we will actively support journals that uh, make their content freely available through PubMed Central and other archives um, by only publishing and only subscribing to, only editing for um, journals that have agreed to do this. So it was intended to be kind of a carrot and a stick. On the one hand, uh, we expected that some publishers would say, wow, you know, here's a big group of scientists, presumably representing a much larger group, that if we launch a journal of this kind, will um, actively support us, or if we make our journal open access, 
uh, we'll win over a bunch of these people as, as you know, authors, reviewers, subscribers, and so forth. And on the other hand, the journals that don't do it uh, would risk losing that support. Um, so it seemed like, wow, this is, you know, this has got to work. And, and strategically, we said, basically, um, uh, since at the time there were very few open access journals, that that so-called boycott would would begin about a year and a half after the letter was initially um, distributed, um, so that the publishers would have time to uh, get their act together and and make their journals open access or or uh, you know create new open access journals. Um, over the course of uh, a year and a half or so, there were something like 36,000, I think, signatures uh, on that letter. A lot of, uh, you know, very well-known, very well-respected scientists had signed on, uh, and um, and there were scientists from, I think, 170 countries that signed the letter and so forth. But but uh, the practical effect on the publishers was virtually nil. A year went by and the deadline came for the publishers to implement an open access plan. Let's hear what happens. You know, D-Day arrived and there were still pitifully few options available to the people who had promised only to publish in open access journals. Uh, and very soon after, that's when we basically decided, okay, <laughs> you know, First of all, we were extremely pissed at the publishers again, which is sort of our default emotion in this in this whole area. And uh, and secondly, um, we felt like we had made an implicit promise to the people who had signed the letter uh, that you know <laughs> there would be places for them to publish at the end of this all that it would you know that would have a have the intended effect. And um, for both of those reasons, we basically decided, well, you know, I mean, Mike and I, our, our lives were already busy enough. You know, we had families and, and very active labs and so forth. And the last thing we wanted to do was take on, you know, uh, something new. But we felt like, okay, we just got to do this. So um, we decided, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to launch our own open access publisher and we're going to compete in the free market uh, against these, um, you know, bad guys and, uh, and beat them and, uh, take them down. Um, and of course I, we didn't have any money at the time and we didn't know anything at all about publishing, but, you know, we, we basically, I mean, at, at that point, everybody who had a, who, who was well positioned to make a difference in terms of how publishing worked had, uh, either passively or actively, um, chosen not to 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 do this and so it was you know at least for me sort of the reluctant realization that if we didn't do it it was just going to be undone and that you know all these all this energy that had come out in the in the in the open letter and the opportunity that the internet you know by that point it was already sort of five years old opportunity to take advantage of the, the internet to change the way that science communication happened and was PubMed kind of central was you know PubMed central had been launched and it was, it was again a huge latent opportunity to do something exactly. great and it was just on at risk of fizzling and uh and any last so any last notion we had i think up to that point that that we that this could be done by convincing others to do it was was out the window 
So with a lot of hard work, PLOS got off the ground. Pat and Mike managed to get a substantial grant from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation to start PLOS. The pieces began to fall into place. However, the, their biggest hurdle was getting scientists to buy in. Scientists can be difficult customers because their motivations are complicated. Even those who believe in open access have incentives to publish in established, high-profile journals. They certainly do. We wondered how PLOS attracted submissions from scientists who have many choices. It turns out it wasn't easy. Even the scientists who signed the pledge to only publish in open access journals weren't guaranteed customers. All of the, the you know, forgetting about the publishers, but to get scientists to 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 sign on. And, and you know, we, the one thing we haven't talked about that's that's crucial in this is, you know, why why is it so hard to get scientists to you know, to, to change their behavior. You know, after all, publishers only, you know, if everybody in the research community just decided that nature didn't exist anymore, nature wouldn't exist anymore. I mean, it, it's, publishers don't, they don't, they don't have any, they don't produce anything of their own. They don't, they, they don't, they, they're really just, you know, providing a service to the community. And if you, you, st you, you don't want to, you know, value yourself with the service, then, then, then they disappear. But, but, but you know it doesn't work that way, and, and people continue to to you know send their their papers to you know high impact places. I think you know probably of the long list of people who signed the open letter, um, there's a very small handful who have have stuck to it in in any meaningful way, and and partly that's because you know most people feel like navigating their life in science requires publishing their papers in high impact journals and so forth. And because, you know, we, I mean, we'd already, it was already clear that that attitude was the major, um, was the major roadblock to, to changing the way publishing works. And so because of that, I think we felt like the most important thing PLOS could do at the beginning was to show people that, that their, um, you know, the, the idea of a high impact journal, a journal that had really high standards and high production quality and all these other things, that that was not a consequence of their business model. It was just a consequence of the way it functioned editorially and the way that, you know, the commitment of the people who were behind it to, 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 to do a good job on it. And so, well, well, I, I, we had, a, there was a more important reason we did what we did, but Mike is talking about why we did this paradoxical thing of launching uh, PLOS with a journal like PLOS Biology, which uh, um, almost perversely, deliberately, it was designed to ask people to send their very best work. We, we hit up all our friends to send their very best work to it. And then we knew in advance that we were going to deliberately reject like 90% of the papers that were submitted because um, the, the reality is the way that um, uh, the way you establish a reputation, a good reputation for a journal is exactly that. You solicit really good papers and then you reject most of them. For us, it was painful because, because you know, our goal really with PLOS was to publish uh, as many as, com you know, complete a set of, of scientific articles that make any contribution to the world to get them all into the open access space and so it's perverse to launch an open access journal and then not publish papers that deserve to be published and deserve to be open access. But the reason we did this, it wasn't so much, it wasn't even so much that we wanted to show, make a point about open access. It was that we had, we had a vision for PLOS that eventually involved um, 
journals that would have a much saner editorial policy, namely that they would um, publish anything that had any merit um, without, they wouldn't reject anything that had any merit, basically. But to get to that point, we had to establish PLOS as a reputable publisher. And the way you get on the radar screen uh, is to launch a journal like PLOS Biology, which is um, why we started that way. But playing hard to get was just one of the ways that Pat and Mike made people pay attention to them. We did this weird thing. We had our, to- our total money we raised to start out with was about 10 million bucks. And in the first couple of months, um, even slightly to the horror of some of our own staff, I think, um, we spent $200,000 uh, to produce and, uh, and then um, show on some primetime slots a TV commercial, a, a quite goofy TV commercial. I mean, it's impossible to describe. And then it was shown on TV in certain select markets like Boston and I think San Francisco and San Diego and places that had, you know, uh, concentration of of, uh, scientists uh, during the Simpsons and the David Letterman show and what other what other I think that was the two I saw that. Yeah. Anyway, some, you know, pretty high profile shows. And of course we knew that the number of people who would actually see the commercial would be minuscule. Um, the ones who did see it would think, what? <laughs> Here's this totally goofy commercial of advertising a scientific publisher and basically announcing on national TV, so to speak, that this, is, this scientific publisher is going to change the world. Um, the real intended effect, the real intention was to create buzz and our $200,000, you know, bought us, you know, 15 seconds on The Simpsons or something like that. But, but what it also bought us is, you know, uh, articles in the New York Times and all the national press and, uh, you know, the established scientific journals and so forth. So basically we got way disproportional publicity and it served as a way of basically saying, you know, uh, we're not just some little timid pipsqueak uh, new um, publisher that basically scientists can ignore and you know never send any good papers to. You know we are we are at birth a serious player. Even though if you saw the commercial, you'd say, well, that's not exactly <laughs> what I would expect from a serious player. But that's another story. So that's how we got the plus we know and love. Now biologists have a legitimate and respectable open access journal to publish in if they choose to. And while publishing in open access journals is the most straightforward route to make your articles freely available, there is another way. That's right. It's called self-archiving. Authors can upload their peer-reviewed articles to an archive that can be freely accessed. Physicists have been self-archiving for over 20 years on a database called appropriately Archive. But biology hasn't been as quick to adopt self-archiving. PubMed Central was intended to be an archive like Archive was in physics, but as we've heard earlier, it didn't work out that way. However, Mike tells us that if you ever make the mistake of publishing in a non-open access journal, self-archiving is a fine alternative. And with that, let's hear some closing words from Mike and Pat. 
I hope that in you know that that when you know twenty years time or five years time, if you look back and say this was published in Nature, people will say, huh, what was Nature? <laughs> well, or or it will become open access. But I, I think that yeah, I, there's so many forces now against the subscription model. It's really just a matter of time. I think uh, the 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 fact that once you've established the principle that uh, this stuff should belong to the public and be freely available for, for the public, even if there's that embargo. You've established the key principle, and uh, there's no going back on it. There's only going forward. I think there's going to be just steady ratcheting forward of that uh, embargo period. And then I think the best thing about it is that uh, the uh, publishers will start, you know, the subscription model will start to be un, un, uh, unprofitable. And uh, and those publishers will either go under or uh, try to play catch up and and change their their uh, subscription journals to an open access model. But I think to me the most important thing in a way for the long term about PubMed Central is that it destabilizes the subscription pu publishing model and it pushes pushes the publishers the subscription publishers toward the cliff. It, there's no longer any excuse for anybody in the world to not publish all their works in open access journals. And, and every scientist who continues to send their papers to Nature or Science or any other journal that uses a subscription model should be ashamed and, and, and embarrassed and, and subject to the ridicule of their peers. And, 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 and 10 years from now, I think they're going to, uh, um, you know, feel a little sheepish about it. But um, anyway, we'll see. That was Dr. Patrick Brown and Dr. Michael Eisen with one last plug for open access. These two scientists are involved in a broad range of advocacy work. You can follow Mike's blog titled, It Is Not Junk, a blog about genomes, DNA, evolution, open science, baseball, and other important things. That's at www.michaeleisen.org. In the meantime, keep an eye on policymakers and their decisions regarding open access. This is a hot area, and if Pat and Mike are right, things are going to happen quickly. In fact, earlier this year, the Obama administration issued a requirement that some U.S. agencies make their data available to the public within a year of publication. So we're right in the middle of the shift towards open access. Well, that's all for today. If you're interested in hearing more from the Grok Science Show, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. You can also download archived episodes from iTunes, archive.org, the Public Radio Exchange, and from our own website, grox.net. For this edition of the Grok Science Show, and for Charles Lee, Frank Ling, Forrest Goulden, and Joanna Rowell, I'm Samantha Thomas. And I'm Steve Briscoe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>